0: tell you what's newsworthy. It is, a, it is, it is news. It's uh, an unbelievable increase in the uh, occurrence of a, an alternative to marriage. It's phenomenal how quickly it's, it's becoming, for sure, the majority viewpoint. It's kind of a marriage bypass. It's living together. And, and so in increasing numbers, um, Many, many people are choosing that, isn't it? They love each other. They're committed, and, and they're just deciding marriage is it's just a piece of paper anyway, and why not, why not just live together? And so that's quite an interesting sociological phenomenon. In fact, it's so newsworthy, uh, there are news reports about it, and I found one. Uh, recently. Uh, it's just a brief little clip I'd like you to watch. It's a news report from another state about this subject of uh, bypassing marriage and just living together. So give this little snippet your attention. You'll see what I mean. Yeah, so there you have it. That's uh, a relatively new, not, living together is not new, but the proliferation of those choosing it as a as an alternative to marriage is on the increase like like crazy. And yet, Uh, A lot of research has been done about it, and it's not all it's cracked up to be. For instance, uh, most studies on the subject indicate that those who live together, this is a surprise to me, have a much higher probability uh, of divorce after they marry than those who began their relationship not by cohabiting but, but by marrying. And I find that to be a surprise because the rationale for many couples living together is to, you know, test the compatibility uh, so as to see if they're suitable candidates for marriage. And then if they find that they are sufficiently compatible, they they marry. And and so they're thinking that will increase the probability of the marriage lasting. And yet the research overwhelmingly indicates the opposite is happening. And that is that those couples who live together before marriage have a much higher incidence of divorce than those who avoid cohabitation, a- and to have not stronger marriages, but in fact, weaker marriages. I-, I find that surprising. Here's another surprise. In a study done by the National Center for Mental Health, it, it was revealed that women who live with men uh, to whom they are not married uh, experience depression four times more than married women and two times more uh, than single women. Now, I find this to be Uh, surprising because part of the justification for living together is fulfillment and the meeting of emotional needs, and yet that seems not to be borne out by the facts. Another surprising study indicates that there is far more infidelity on the part of both parties to a live-in relationship than uh, occurs in, in a marriage. That's surprising to me. And here's another surprising study. It revealed that most women who lived with men apart from marriage said they would never do it again. Now, this is a very surprising outcome to me because after all, if and you saw a glimpse of it, if people are saying it's the best thing in the world, we're happy, it met our needs, that just doesn't seem to be, it seems like an event most women don't want to repeat. It looks like they didn't get out of it what they, what they thought they they would. Folks, this is what sociological and psychological research is telling us, and I find that to be uh, surprisingly consistent with what God has told us all along. You know what God said? Doing things your way is just not going to work out the way you think it is, but doing things my way will. God says, "I I know best, but wait a second. Are we absolutely sure that God is against this whole idea of a a couple in love living together before being married? Can we demonstrate that God is against it? After all, the word cohabitation or, or the phrase living together doesn't even appear in the Bible. That's true. Well, let me share with you an episode that occurred uh, in the life of the Lord. It's in John chapter 4. You're familiar uh, with it. In John 4, we read about the fact that the Lord met a Samaritan woman at a well. She was a resident of Samaria. It's an area in, in Israel. You've heard about it. A- and the Lord met her a- a- at the well and told her, he told this woman that uh, well water is not the water that's going to ultimately satisfy her, but that he has water that will satisfy. In fact, he said it's water springing up to eternal life. And she said, Master, Lord, can I, can I have this water? And the Lord first told her to go and find her husband and, and bring him back to this place. She replied, I have no husband. And the Lord said, You've answered correctly, since you have had how many husbands? Five husbands, so yeah, so you had five husbands. And then in John 4, verse 18, uh, the Lord said, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. It seems to me the Lord makes, in saying what he did, a very clear distinction between five husbands whom this woman had been wedded to and her present relationship with a non-husband man whom she is living with, who she is considering to be her husband, but whom the Lord says ain't. You had five, but the one you're living with is not your husband. So it seems to me, at the least, we can see he makes a distinction between the bond of marriage and uh, an alternative to it, living together. Not only does he make a distinction, he doesn't like living together. He doesn't think that's a good thing. I think I can prove this to you. Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 4. Uh, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Now, how is marriage held in honor if a couple uh, opts out of it entirely? That is to dishonor marriage. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be uh, undefiled. Now, how can the marriage bed uh, be special, set apart, sanctified, if people are coming together physically, apart from the marriage bed. And then it says, for fornicators and adulterers, in some cases, the terms overlap I think we can make the case that in other cases, one is a reference to sex before marriage and the other sex outside of marriage. Fornication I think I could make the case here is a reference to sex outside of marriage. God calls it fornication. Boy, things have changed. Uh, today, we refer to it as an alternative to marriage uh, chosen by two consenting adults. That really has changed the whole image. But I remember a day when we called it shacking up. It, it didn't, we didn't sweeten it up. That was, Listen, I remember a time when it was referred to as living in sin. Look, look, look. I do not want to hurt anybody here in that situation. That is not our goal. It is to help you. <laughs> it is to help you to be in conformity with the giver of life who knows better even than you and I how to do life. That's our goal. That is the goal. It's not to hurt. It's not to offend. It's not to go out of our way. To judge, to criticize. It's to guide. It's to encourage. It's to beg. Father knows best. Whatever has transpired, let it be. Accept his forgiveness and make amends. That's what repentance is. Change your direction. Confess sin. Know that God's grace is sufficient. Say, oh God, I want to do things your way now. That's what we're all trying to do here. We're trying to hold each, each of uh, our, our, ourselves accountable to doing things God's, God's way. So, so from God's perspective, I think it's pretty clear. Sex in marriage is acceptable and good, but sex before marriage ain't. In fact, he calls it fornication, and fornication unrepented of, according to Hebrews 13.4, is a basis for God's judgment. So the Bible is pretty clear. Sex is part of marriage and should not happen outside of marriage. The marriage bed, as referred to in Hebrews 13.4, can only be kept pure when the sexual relationship is confined to the limits of marriage. And anything else brings judgment. So I... I ask you this question, if you're in a living situation, I take it you love the partner you're living with, but if you really love him and you really love her, please don't cooperate in a relationship that in the end is going to bring on your loved one the judgment of God. Do you understand? You see how serious? You see how serious this is? Don't, Don't do that. But a couple could say, look. We're living together only because we're friends and because it is financially expedient for us to do so. However, we have separate beds. We, we, don't, we don't. That was not easy to find. We're not sleeping together. we just, we're friends. Look, I'm not the smartest guy in the world and I'm getting old and all the rest. But is this the best way to fight temptation? Am I missing something here? Even if the relationship started out being platonic, do you think in that repetitive close contact you're not providing an opportunity for the flesh? I don't get it. And not only temptation, what about testimony? Could I speak to you as fellow Christians? What about our, you know, Ephesians 5.3? But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And someone sees a Christian couple coming to church, seeking the Lord Jesus, different last names, living under the same roof. And even if you're saying we're not sharing the same bed, don't you give an opportunity for that person to wonder, wonder, if you're really living in a way that's consistent with your profession of faith. What about our testimony? Folks, here is a sad but true statement. Many have rejected Christianity because they do not see people living it out. We're very quick to declare the truths of the faith, placards, protests, and parades, boycotts, and all the rest, and there might be merit for all of the above, But I think they lack something, if not coupled with a consistent demonstration of what we're trying to declare to the world. In fact, because we're not living in a way that's consistent with what we espouse, I think we're losing our voice in this culture. Do you know we're not getting the hearing we once got? We rail against this alternative to marriage and that alternative to marriage... But we live together unmarried. Don't you see we've forfeited our platform? Is it worth it? Don't do that. Don't sell yourself for that. Don't compromise the testimony for which you have been called. It's just not not worth it. But what is behind God's strong insistence on a couple beginning their lives together with marriage and not cohabitation? You know, last week we discussed the fact that God hates divorce. Therefore, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be, wouldn't God be in favor of of some kind of an arrangement prior to marriage that would, that would maybe decrease the incidence of divorce? So, what's wrong with a kind of uh, trial run? Let's call it a trial run. See, here's the deal: what the couple living together are trying to test with regard to possible future marriage cannot be tested until marriage. See, the laboratory of living together is not at all the same context as the laboratory of being wedded together. Folks, it's not possible to know what married life is like without being married. It's unbelievable. You date, you stay up uh, in the wee hours of the night talking, you just delight with one another, and then you marry, and all it takes is that you forget to put the toilet seat down. And it just changes the whole dynamic because I'm not, nothing personal. I'm talking about someone else. It's just a different thing. You see, you can't test out marriage until you occupy the the territory. Marriage changes everything. See, in living together, the couple is uh, testing their compatibility, but in being married together, the couple is working on building their compatibility. It's entirely different. The measure of commitment and intentionality which we find in marriage, the kind of commitment that moves a couple to to doing everything they could to correct and resolve their problems so that the marriage is not terminated, that's absent in a living together relationship. You see, couples live together not to invest in the things that will serve the purpose of working things out as much as as much as to avoid that whole process. You see, by definition, uh, the relationship lacks commitment. Living together is more like renting an apartment than owning a home. Have you rented? You're not interested in remodeling and repainting and all that, unless the landlord does it for you. You're not going to make an investment in that which is not yours. But home ownership changes everything. You see every little blemish and this and that and every blade of grass that's not the way it should be. It's yours. That's what happens in marriage. It's blessed ownership. It's wonderful. You both own in. To the irreversible relationship and as a result there's a motivation to invest in problem solving to make it work that you just don't find in a living together arrangement now a cohabiting couple could claim they claim all the time that no we are just as committed as married couples are but they're not they're not being honest let me tell you neither party in a cohabitation arrangement, is all in, I'm telling you, one foot in, one foot quickly on the way out. Commitment in a living relationship, by definition, is optional, is conditional. It's not for better or for worse. It's for, it better be better, or it's over. A Hallmark card illustrates this graphically. It says, I can't promise you forever but I can promise you today. So that's what living together is like. It's a day-to-day thing that lacks lasting marital commitment. In fact, commitment is exactly what the cohabiting couple is seeking to avoid. This is illustrated by the following statement, uh, for instance. I would never commit to spending my life with a man without living with him first. The young gal made that statement. Here's the problem. The studies indicate that living together don't, does not necessarily lead to marriage at all. After five to seven years of living together, 21% of uh, the couples surveyed are found to be doing exactly what they're doing, living together. They, they, they don't marry at all. Uh, researchers Popeno and Whitehead uh, indicated that one of the top ten reasons men said they were reluctant to ever get married is that they can live with a woman and have the same benefits, see? So I ask you this. Are you willing to give yourself mind, body, and soul to someone making no real promises to you? Why would you be willing to sell yourself, you of such value in the eyes of God, why would you be willing to sell yourself for such a low price, Could it be you're willing to do it because everyone is doing it? And statistically, though not everyone is doing it, almost everyone is doing it. In fact, it seems to be the majority view, as I mentioned earlier, what once was a taboo now is simply an alternative arrangement. George Barna indicated that 60% of Americans, for instance, believe, 60% of Americans believe that the best way to establish successful marriage is to live together prior to marriage. 60% of Americans believe the best way to ensure the success of a marriage is to live together before marriage. Another survey found that two-thirds of high school senior boys agreed or mostly agreed uh, with this statement. It is usually a good idea uh, for a couple to live together before getting married in order to find out whether they really get along two-thirds of our high school senior boys said, yes, I agree with that, we're in trouble. We are in trouble. Living together has become the new normal, but that it is statistically normal out there does not make it one bit more acceptable in here. We must live differently. You know this term accepting Christ? So-and-so accepted Christ. I accepted Christ. Yay, we clap. It's wonderful. I hope we're understanding the ramifications. It means you're now a member of the kingdom of Almighty God. And there are kingdom rules. There are kingdom ways. It's not just the utterance of some words and then you're gone. It's new citizenship it's to be under a new king you've dethroned yourself you said king jesus i bow before you forgive me savior come into my life thank you for putting me in a new kingdom and to the extent we're living still like the folks out there ah oh, we're selling ourselves short we're compromising our our testimony. I wonder, because it is so statistically acceptable today, I wonder, living together, I wonder if this is the reason why more and more of us who are Christians are finding less problem in a live-in relationship. This is an irony to me. You know, it's possible to see, even in a young child, a kind of an inclination from early on. It's not taught. I think it's inborn. A kind of a a quest for a sense of uniqueness and specialness. We all have it. We can relate to this. I want to be loved. I want to be unique. I want to be thought of as being special. And then there comes a time... For us at different times in our life when we meet up with the giver of life, the king of kings, and we find out that he has pronounced the specialness upon us we could never have achieved in any other way. Oh, my goodness. He says, you're chosen. You're holy. You're for my own possession. Oh, you are mine. I am yours. You talk about a unique and special designation. And yet we seem to be so quick to give up our specialness in order to be included in the prevailing cultural norm. I don't get it. God has literally been pained to set us apart, and we are paining him in our quest to fit in. Folks, is it that important to win the approval of folks out there who are lost as could be? I don't get it. I, I, don't, I suffer from it like you we all do i don't even get it i don't get it when i do it too could i tell you something with all due respect to the culture out there it's decayed and deteriorated and depraved and i don't want to fit in i'd rather be set apart holy as our savior is is holy you know what god said to us you are special he said you are mine you know what God said I have set you apart to be like me I have set you apart to be with me are we willing to exchange our birthright for a mess of worldly polluted soup come on guys we seem to be increasingly willing because everyone is supposedly doing it to exchange our specialness for inclusion in the crowd of life in all our life We're on a quest for specialness. We don't want to be lost in the crowd. Well, the Lord Jesus says, you won't if you know me. Folks, don't do this. Don't do this. Help me not to do it. I don't want to fit in. (laughs) I don't want to be statistically part of the normative cultural experience. Let's help each other out. Let's lovingly call each other to task, hold each other accountable, pray for one another. Let's be salt and light. Let's be set apart, a distinct people. Let's live up to what's already true of us. We are already part of God's family, cannot be forfeited. Let's just live up to who we are. Listen, the new norm of living together is really the old sin of fornication. Call it what you will. This is what God calls it. God says, don't do this. I love you. Don't do it. Don't do this. You know what he says? My holy ones, you are special to me. Don't do it. So many are choosing today to live together without commitment, without promises. And here's why. They have seen so many marital promises broken. They may be children themselves of divorce They were raised in families of divorce. It's caused such disruption, such pain, they don't want to replicate that again. They don't want to risk it. And they've persuaded themselves that living together uh, produces less risk. It's a bond that is less risky than marriage. So if you need an exit strategy, they think it's easier to get out of a cohabitation arrangement than it is to dissolve a marriage. And yet, that's not exactly true. Folks getting out of a living relationship is often not as easy as people think. Listen, a a breakup of a living arrangement involves breaking up of household items and uh, inevitable conflicts over property and leases and past due bills. And this is not to mention the emotional cost to the couple, to the parties of the severance of this relationship. And if there are children involved, what about the impact? on the lives of the children, it's not so easy to go your separate ways. And women experience often an additional kind of loss. Women of a certain age, their biological clocks are, are, are ticking away while they've cohabited and they've lost time in which to find a marriageable partner and to have children. It's very costly. You can't what a foolish way to put it. You can't play with fire and not get burnt. It's not easy to sever a live-in relationship. People say things, however, people say things like, look, you wouldn't buy a car, would you, without a test drive? That sounds good, doesn't it? That's a good, good old boy thing. You wouldn't buy a car. Would you? See, let me tell you why that is uh, washed up. Um, Do you realize that a car is not the same thing as a person? Okay, good. I just, yeah, see those, see here's the deal. If you decide, you go to a showroom, you know what I mean? You look at the car. If you decide, in fact, not to buy the car, as far as I could tell, the car does not feel rejected and hurt. The car, as far as I know, uh, does not need counseling. And the car does not develop trust issues with reference to the next potential buyer. It's a thing! But when you toy with a human heart, don't you see our Father is not trying to to, to cramp our style. He's trying to guide us into ways... Uh, that are best for us, that diminish the possibility of pain and hurt. People in live-in situations get emotionally bruised really badly when those live-in situations are terminated. It's not easy to terminate them at all. I can appreciate the interest people have in not going through the pain of uh, divorcement that they perhaps have grown up with, but living together, folks, is not the way to do it. In fact, living together, do you know this, may actually increase the possibility of marital breakdown later. Why? See, a couple living together has nearly everything marriage has to offer but fewer commitments or responsibilities. And when marriage takes place, both parties feel trapped because now they must assume new chores, new obligations and new responsibilities while getting nothing new that they didn't already have, you see? They're saying this, this is not a good deal. I had all this, I had sex, I had everything before, and now I got to wash the dishes. Take out the garbage. Pull the shower curtain. Take you to movies I don't want to see. So actually living together increases the chance of the dissolution of a marriage later. And living together more than ever, you realize this, don't you, is leading to children without married parents. Half of American children, half, have lived or are now living in a home where the adults are not married If you're wondering why we are a crumbling society, look no further than that statistic. Half living in a home where the adults are not married. The National Marriage Project uh, revealed that divorce is no longer the greatest threat to the stability uh, of a family and to child well-being. In fact, they say cohabitation is the largest unrecognized threat to the quality and stability of children's family lives. Uh, The studies indicate that children are much more likely to suffer abuse in a cohabiting relationship than in married family, or even in a single parent family. And if the gal in a live-in situation becomes pregnant, there is an enormously high probability that the man will leave within two years, resulting in a single mom raising a fatherless child. That is not the ideal. And what messages are the couple living together? Unintentionally, unintentionally. What messages are cohabiting couples giving to children? How about this one? Marriage is not of much value. Do you know, could I use a strong word, you've just put a curse on your child? Because when your child is 15, 16, 17, your child is likely to want to move in with his girlfriend or her boyfriend. What are you going to say? What are you going to feel? You know in your heart the very thing you find acceptable for you, you don't want your kids to engage in. That's inconsistent. Don't do that to yourself. You're killing yourself. You're not going to be able to live with the inconsistency. Resolve it. Do things God's way, no matter what the cost. It's costing your children too much. And, 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 and how about this unintended message? Commitment is not of much value. That's the message. You don't mean to do that. But that's the unintended message you're giving your, your children if you're living in. And there are children present. How about this one? Deferred gratification is not of much value. I was watching House Hunters the other day. Yeah. Thanks for your support. And, uh, and uh, it was about a couple. They were 25 years, uh, both 25 years old, engaged And they decided to buy a house because the uh, market, the conditions, the market conditions lent lent themselves to home buying at this time. They bought a house. They made a decision to buy a house while engaged. But this was shocking to me. They also made a decision not to live in it together until they married. I said, say what? I had to look at, what? This is on TV? What? Are you kidding? It was was unbelievably, it was like, hallelujah, there's hope. Whoa, there's one couple in America doing it right. It was just unbelievable. You know what they did? They showed a willingness to defer immediate pleasure and gratification for the sake of something in the future. They valued more. It's a mark of maturity, isn't it? my fellow adults, is it not a mark of maturity to delay gratification? But aren't we teaching our kids just go for it, get all the gusto, if it feels good, do it? Aren't we unintentionally teaching them that if we move in together to have each other fully instead of delaying that gratification for the sake of a greater, more virtuous objective, and that is marriage? Yeah, but people are saying, "Come on, marriage is personal. Marriage is private. Marriage is not—it's not based on a piece of paper." In fact, this perspective is expressed by a gal who uh, wrote in a question to an online counselor. I found this on the internet. Listen, uh, this is what the gal writes: "My boyfriend and I live together. I've been married before, and and." Due to all the laws man has put on marriage, I don't want to be married again. I believe as long as I love the person I'm with and plan on spending the rest of my life with him, I can be married to him in my heart. As far as I've seen in the Bible, it states people take a person, people take a person as their husband and wife. I think if I vow myself to God, to the person I'm living with and, and in my heart, I'm married to them, then it's okay. I guess my question is, why is it that everyone seems to think I have to pay money and get a piece of paper to not be, in quotes, living in sin? Thanks, Tina. Is Tina right about marriage? You know, I had to think about this, because Tina makes a lot of sense. But I don't think Tina is right, because I started to think about what really defines a legitimate bond. Tina has a definition of it, apart from marriage, is she right? What, in fact, is marriage? Could I suggest to you three criteria, ingredients, to me, I think, that authorize, that make an authorized, legitimate marriage? Here's the first, the public ceremony. Yeah, the public ceremony. Do you know marriage has always been a public event? It's never been a private event. There's a specific point at which people in the community recognize this couple who have hitherto been unmarried, now to be married. That's called the public ceremony. It changes the past. It redefines their identity. Marriage has never been a private affair. It takes place within the community at large. The public ceremony demonstrates the couple's seriousness and intentionality in fulfilling their responsibility, not just to one another, but to larger society, including friends and family and neighbors and fellow Christians. Folks, we do not live to ourselves. We live as members of a community. That's the first criteria that makes marriage public ceremony. Here's the second, the declaration of commitment. That's what happens. They're called the vows. I know couples spend all kinds of money and energy and all the rest on planning the circumference of a wedding, you know, gown and napkins and all this kind of stuff. Fine. But the essence is the public exchange of vows. Vows, I give you my word. I promise, I pledge. And they make these pledges in the presence of family and friends and church and state and... Here's the one that really gets you. God. They make these promises to God and in the presence of God. And there are witnesses to it and... God is one of them. So this is another ingredient that makes a marriage. And then when this public commitment has been expressed, the man and woman only then are ready for physical consummation of the bond. And so this leads to the third ingredient that makes a marriage. It's the physical sexual union. But wait, sex alone The sex act does not constitute marriage. Tina is wrong. No, you see, if the sex act made marriage, then God would not have said sex outside of marriage is sin. He wouldn't have called it fornication and adultery. He would have said as soon as a couple has sex, they are married. But that is nowhere found in the Bible. Tina is wrong about what marriage is it's not private it's public it's not what the parties to it consider it to be it's what the author of it God it's what he considers it to be how dare we remake what the maker has made, and think we could do so with impunity. We're not waiting for the judgment of God. We're experiencing it in modern-day America. Are you kidding me? You can't do all these alternatives to holy matrimony and think God won't be disturbed by it. Are you kidding me? Look, I don't know what's going to happen out there. I know we're supposed to be out there and help and love and share and evangelize but frankly my biggest concern is what's happening in here in the church why aren't you and I willing to raise the bar and be holy as God is holy why aren't we ready to demonstrate to the world a different kind of statistic long-lasting marriage is done God's way come on folks we could do better we must do better It's for the glory of God. It's for the sake of lost people out there. We're talking to them about the better, more successful life we can have when one knows the Lord Jesus, but they don't see us living very skillfully and successfully at all. Folks, uh, the idea of intimacy without public expressed marital commitment is an idea that is absolutely foreign to God. In fact, that's not the way with him and us. There's nothing private about his bond with us. He calls us his bride, proclaims it and wants us to proclaim it. He says, you're my bride. Let the whole world know it's not private. Go about as my bride. But with living together, there's a noticeable absence of noticeable symbols of commitment. There's no formal ceremony. There's there's no public pronouncement of vows. There's no license. There's no rings. And I wonder if what's behind all this unstated option uh, is the freedom to consider other options. But folks, the wedding ring is a powerful symbol. Very, very powerful. When I do weddings sometimes, when it's time for the ring exchange, and the couple's exchange rings, placing them on each other's finger, I say, do you know what you've just done? You've just put a tourniquet on one another to stop the circulation. That's what it means. It means there are no options. That's what this means. The absence of it, I wonder, is so that the couple could exercise the option. I just wonder. Could it be that the absence of this symbol, this ring, is a symbol of availability to other potential partners in the event one's present live-in partner simply doesn't work out? But marriage is meant to say, this ring is meant to say, I'm with my partner irreversibly even if things don't work out exactly as I imagined them to work out. But in living together, the statement is made, this is my partner unless he fails the test, unless she fails the test. Folks, in cohabitation, nothing is promised. Would you settle for that? Don't do it. In Christ's weddedness, to us the church much is promised and he wants us in our relationships to replicate to model to mirror his relationship with us the bride of Christ i close with two verses of scripture second corinthians chapter 11 verse 2 paul writes to a troubled group of christians he says for i am jealous for you with A godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Betrothal in ancient Israel was a phase of the marriage. It it, um, was significant, but the betrothed couple did not yet consummate physically the marriage. Until the public marriage ceremony. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians, and by application, us just as much, that we are betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ and we are awaiting the consummation of our weddedness upon his return. That's what our status is. Who am I? Who are you? I am betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you doing with your life? I'm walking with him. I'm seeking to honor him. I'm trying not to commit spiritual adultery. I'm trying to do things his way because I want to ready myself, just as the bride does, for the consummation of the relationship at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Paul reminded even the Corinthians of their status in Christ Jesus, but he also stated his serious concern about their situation in verse 3. Of 2 Corinthians 11, he said, but I am afraid that as the serpent, a reference way back to Genesis, deceived Eve, how? By his craftiness. Your minds, that's the battle, folks, right there. Your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. As the serpent deceived Eve, how? With enticing, Persuasive arguments, so too we, Christ's bride, run the risk of being ensnared by the persuasive thinking of the culture. Let's do things God's way. We have the mind of Christ. Statistics notwithstanding. The new norm notwithstanding. Almost everyone doing it notwithstanding. We are betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wedding ceremony. Don't you see it will be as the bride? Let's ready ourselves for it now by not doing that, which will be even then a cause for shame. Don't do it. It's not worth it. I'm telling you, when we see our heavenly husband, you and I want more than anything else to hear him say. We want to hear this. Well done. Good. And faithful servants don't exchange birthright for the sake of worldly pottage soup that will only poison and leave a bad taste in our mouth folks do you mind me telling you I don't know that we have much time left I'm no date setter I'm not big into prophecy I don't understand it all that well it's important I just don't have a head to wrap around all the options and stuff like that. I'm just looking to the prevailing circumstances, and I just think, uh, holy moly, we are moving to a grand climax. i got to tell you, all we have to do is live like the bride of Christ until the wedding time. What if you've sinned? Lord Jesus, forgive me. That's what you do. I have sinned. Then you say, Lord Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. That's important. Otherwise, you're going to try to do something to make up for your forgiveness. But Jesus paid it all, don't you see? Believe him for it. Lord Jesus, I've sinned. Thank you for forgiving me. What's done is done. You have cast all my sin behind your back. I don't want to go back there and retrieve it. And I know you're not going to. So from this day forth, though there are consequences for sins I've committed for sure, nonetheless, from this day forward, oh God, I will live like your betrothed. You and I, hand in hand, will one day walk down the aisle together. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Say thank you, Lord Jesus, for hope, for a second, third, and fourth chance. Thank you for never letting me go. Thank you for giving me a better way. Lord Jesus, even as we think about this and talk about you, we're stirred up, we're interested in your return. Are we praying amiss if we say, Come quickly, Lord Jesus? No, we're not. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But we have plenty to do, don't we? I think we think we have to clean up the world and weed the world's garden, and perhaps we do, but I think the weeding has to start with us. Oh, God, why are they not seeing more of you in more of us? That's a problem. Oh, God, in our quest to fit in, be correct, be stylish. We've compromised like crazy, but it's not too late, it's not too late. So I pray, oh God, as the bride of Christ, we would spend the rest of our days readying ourselves for you. And thank you for the promise that will be presented one day before you, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, clothed in white linen. Oh God, the best is yet to come. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to live in light of who we are, ones who are wedded to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.